happening um, at the moment is, of course, uh, Brexit. Unless I, you know, have missed uh, something on the news. Uh, as far as I know, there is no news yet. Uh, but we are really dealing with uh, crunch time here. Um, you know, there might be the idea that you can keep uh, kicking it down down the road. Uh, but even if um, a deal was done now, it really is um, last moment. You know, there's um, it has to go through the European Parliament. And if it does go through the European Parliament already, uh, they're talking about not being able to put it through the various committees. It will be a vote for a vote against. That's my understanding um, um, of it. So, again, you can read your newspaper of choice. Uh, but the general view seems to be, well, it's 50-50. Um, I mean, precisely the danger, um, you know, of running things so close to the wire is that suddenly something um, crops up uh, and a deal can't, can't be done. As I understand it, and I'm sure you've um, read about it um, as well, uh, there are three major uh, sticking points. Uh, the first one is fishing. Uh, that doesn't matter uh, economically. It's symbolic. It matters politically. Um, I think I read in the Weekly Worker that fishing in Britain accounts for something like 0.1-0.2% uh, of GDP. So it, it's pretty um, marginal, uh, to say the least. Nevertheless, when it comes to the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, the Sun, uh, and um, you know the backbenchers in um, Boris Johnson's uh, um, uh, uh, party, uh, this does matter. Um, you know, uh, British um, fishers have got to catch British fish, uh, even though at the moment they export most of them, and I think an awful lot of the fish that people in Britain do eat are imported. Uh, we like different things uh, than we find, you know, uh, around the coast. So fishing is important, uh, but for the reasons that I've said. Uh, the other two, I think, are more fundamental, um, and that's the so-called um, even playing field. This is about government subsidies, ta tax breaks, um, basically, um, Europe will be trying to attempt uh, to prevent Britain, you know, you know, a free booting Britain undercutting uh, Europe when it comes to quality, um, when it comes to laws, uh, when it comes to regulations uh, and all the rest of it. So that has to be a, a agreed that there's some sort of level uh, playing field. And then you come immediately to the question of governance. Uh, and that is all about how do you settle um, the inevitable disputes uh, that crop up? Will it be done uh, through the mechanisms of the EU or will it be done on a bilateral uh, uh, basis? Obviously, the EU is insisting on some sort of EU uh, institutions. Uh, Britain um, wants some sort of bilateral uh, relationship. Either way, you can see that these are how should I put it, uh, uh, big issues that aren't easily um, uh, overcome. Um, the other thing I would say about uh, the possibility of a, um, 
a no deal uh, Brexit is that, of course, uh, here you are in Britain um, in the middle still of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the economy uh, already has taken a hit uh, way beyond uh, 1929, not for the same reasons, that's uh, obviously the case, but to inflict on uh, British capitalists, because that's what we're talking about, a no-deal Brexit uh, will matter. Um, it will be, to use a, a phrase from the past, a double uh, whammy. Um, you know, there will be huge queues, one would guess, uh, going down to Dover, um, um, in terms of uh, uh, companies uh, that have uh, planned, um, you know, on a frictionless uh, border, uh, this will matter about whether they continue operating in Britain. So we've already had uh, Japanese uh, car manufacturers say that if there's a no, if there's no deal, uh, then the continuation of operations in Britain, you know, will have to be questioned. Uh, I think that's the, the case anyway, to tell the truth, um, given the trade deal between Japan uh, and the EU. Either way, uh, what you'll be talking about potentially with a no deal um, is another uh, body blow uh, to the economy. And uh, although the uh, Brexiteers insist uh, that Britain will, uh, to quote uh, uh, Boris Johnson, flourish mightily, um, e either way, uh, personally, especially given if 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 that's the case uh, that Trump goes and we get President Biden, um, you know, I really do see uh, you know troubled times ahead uh, for uh, uh, Great Britain uh, PLC. I can see lots of companies leaving. I can see lots of companies having troubles. Uh, and that will impact on the working class. It will weaken trade unionism. It will weaken the bargaining power uh, of trade unions. And we should expect attacks um, um, on the working class, you know, quite vicious attacks um, on the working class uh, under such um, um, circumstances. In terms of um, a Brexit, um, I think there's two other things I want to um, add, uh, and that's sort of slightly longer term. And that is, first of all, that uh, if Britain is going to suffer uh, a double whammy uh, because of uh, a no deal Brexit, and of course there could be uh, a last minute deal, uh, Ireland will be the country that's uh, affected uh, most. Um, a huge proportion of um, Ireland's um, exports go through Britain. You know, a significant proportion of its exports are uh, uh, for Britain. And then you take into account the um, Northern Ireland question. Joe Biden has made his position clear on that. He doesn't want a border, i.e. he wants the Good Friday deal uh, not to uh, be overthrown. Well, how on earth can you maintain the Good Friday deal uh, when uh, Britain is a foreign country without a trade deal uh, with the EU. I, I still can't work out how the two are compatible. Um, so Biden then turns around and says, um, unlike Trump, uh, you won't be at the top of um, uh, RQ uh, when it comes to a trade deal. He's not using Obama's term, uh, but nonetheless, 
uh, we're not going to uh, uh, give Britain priority uh, because as far as Biden is concerned, from what we can gather, he isn't an enemy um, of the EU project. He would rather maintain the EU as some sort of bulwark uh, against Russia, uh, not Russian expansionism, uh, but, but uh, how should you put it, uh, hemming Russia um, um, in um, from um, our east, uh, from their uh, west. Uh, that was something, remember, the Americans promised not to do uh, when they were talking uh, to Gorbachev, that uh, NATO wouldn't be extended, uh, the EU wouldn't be extended. Uh, well, lo and behold, uh, the EU has uh, been extended, and so has uh, uh, NATO. Okay, moving on. Um, the other big thing in, in Britain is, of course, the Labour Party. And uh, what we've seen very predictably um, is more suspensions, uh, more actions uh, by the labor bureaucracy uh, against any uh, local branch official uh, that allows a motion to go through um, expressing concern, even outrage uh, about the treatment of the former leader, uh, Jeremy uh, Corbyn, and as I understand it, uh, even to have a discussion um, on the question uh, is considered uh, a violation of um, uh, the diktats that are coming from Labour Party headquarters in uh, um, central uh, uh, London. So we've had a whole series of, um, of different individuals who've been suspended, the most prominent uh, uh, amongst the recent suspensions is of course Naomi uh, Winborne Idrissis, uh, but also with uh, 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 Gary Leffley. And I think Gary was, um, wasn't he former general secretary of CND? And I do believe he also used to be in the CPGB. Um, they've both been uh, uh, suspended um, uh, from uh, the Labour Party. Um, also, um, you know, in terms of uh, this particular circle, of course, we cannot forget uh, Moshe Makover. Um, he wrote uh, a provocative letter uh, to the Labour Party HQ, pointing out the recent articles uh, that he's written and basically uh, challenging them to find uh, any evidence of anti-Semitism. And if there is evidence of anti-Semitism, please explain to me um, what this evidence is in return, what he got, uh, of course, is not something that says, well, this is wrong with this article and that's wrong with this article. He simply got back. Um, Will you explain why this article isn't anti-Semitic? Oh, and meanwhile, uh, you are suspended uh, from uh, the Labour Party. Now, Moshe has now written an open letter uh, to the Labour Party telling them that he's not going to uh, go before one of their um, star chamber uh, trials um, and basically do your worst. Uh, that's the message uh, that Moshe uh, is laying down. Um, with, there's also, um, you know, um, various rallies uh, by Momentum, uh, the uh, Labour Representation Committee, I'm pleased to see uh, that's saying that we're not going to bow down uh, uh, to this, that we're going to fight uh, these suspensions. We're going to fight 
these restrictions on basic democracy um, in the labor movement. You know, here's the, the Mail, the Sun, the Guardian, the BBC discussing all of these things. But if you're a member of the Labour Party, you cannot discuss these questions inside uh, uh, the Labour Party. And if you dare uh, discuss it, uh, disciplinary action will be taken. To use the word dictatorship or um, despotism, all of those words are relevant uh, to the present uh, situation. I have to say, though, that it does appear, at least to me, uh, that we're in a situation uh, of, uh, uh, of where um, to be in the Labour Party, one is faced now uh, with a basic choice. That's what's going to happen. Either you stay in and you keep your head down and you gag yourself or you fight and you find yourself outside. Uh, that, that's how it strikes me. Uh, I would certainly be urging uh, comrades to stay and fight but what stay and fight actually means is stay, fight, and you're out. And the precise problem is uh, for those comrades that have um, put the Labour Party at the heart of their strategy, who've rely, who rely on the Labour Party in terms of the future uh, to deliver socialism, uh, they are faced with, how should you put it, uh, a programmatic crisis. Um, uh, there are those, if I read uh, the articles right, uh, who are saying that the Labour, the Labour left is so weak, uh, the Labour left is so divided uh, that what we need to do, this is a sort of quote, what we need to do is choose where we fight very carefully. Now, I might be wrong, uh, but I take that as code word uh, for keep your head down, don't fight the witch hunt, don't object uh, to the suspension uh, of Jeremy Corbyn uh, from the Parliamentary Labour Party. Don't object when branch secretaries and branch chairs are suspended and one presumes, uh, you know, uh, expelled. Don't object to that. Wait, 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 uh, and maybe bank on uh, a Starmer uh, government or the trade unions riding uh, to our rescue or something along those lines. I don't know, uh, but I think that these comrades do face, as I said before, a strategic crisis uh, at the present time. Uh, from my own angle, um, you know, my strategy uh, rests on the working class being organized into a communist party. I view trade unions as a vital uh, field of struggle. I view the Labour Party uh, as a vital field of struggle, but I don't bank everything on it. Um, and so there's a difference there. Um, for those of us uh, that say a communist party is essential uh, if we're gonna ever see socialism, um, it's not that we uh, uh, you know, treat what's happening in the Labour Party lightly, uh, but we don't view it as a strategic crisis. So there will be those uh, that will keep their heads down uh, there will be those uh, that subordinate uh, what they believe in their hearts um, to the next uh, Labour uh, government. The precise problem is that at least how things seem to be going is that it's not that um, uh, Starmer has some sort of um, particular world view that is pushing him 
um, um, in the direction of purging and suspending um, its events. So I, I don't myself view Starmer as the equivalent um, of what we used to call in Britain in the 1950s. I'm just about old enough to remember it. They used to be called the revisionists. This was the right wing leadership um, of the Labour Party around a guy called Hugh, Hugh Gateskill, um, who never became prime minister. Um, you know, it was Harold Wilson uh, that replaced him. But Hugh Gateskill was part of this uh, school of thought that thought that Clause 4 was outdated uh, because when, when we're in government, we don't put it into practice. Uh, when we go before the electorate, uh, we no longer promise them in reality socialism. What we promise is a nicer, kinder version of capitalism. Therefore, Clause 4 ought to go. That was his uh, uh, stance. So in terms of um, gate skill, he knew what he wanted to transform the Labour Party uh, into. I think you can say the same um, with uh, Tony Blair and the, um, the so-called third way, Andrew Giddings and all of that sort of type stuff. But I don't think you can say that with Keir Starmer. And it's not just because, you know, in his youth, he edited um, uh, a Pabloite uh, magazine called Socialist uh, Alternatives. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, that in order to become uh, acceptable uh, to the bourgeoisie uh, at the present time, uh, what he had to do is accept the Ten Commandments uh, from the British Board of Deputies. He had to go along uh, with the IHRA so-called definition of anti-Semitism. He had to go along with that entire uh, narrative. And it's that narrative, actually, uh, that's taking him. I, 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 you know, I don't think he's saying this is why. What this is what I want the Labour Party to look like in five years, uh, but it's taking him step by step along a road uh, of where the left in the Labour Party is either cowed, silenced, domesticated, um, destroyed to all intents and purposes, um, uh, and potentially into a situation uh, of where he starts to expel. Uh, general secretaries uh, of uh, affiliated uh, trade unions. Uh, I mean, I don't know, but that's that's how how things appear to be developing. So we had a statement. Uh, it wasn't a prepared statement uh, by Angela Rayner, and I think she was speaking to the Jewish Labour Movement, the Zionist uh, organization that's affiliated to the Labour Party, saying that she will expel. She will expel thousands upon thousands. Uh, if necessary. Uh, I think we should take uh, her seriously. And remember, during uh, the election campaign to replace uh, Starmer uh, and uh, um, elect a deputy and a leader, uh, there were many on the left that viewed her as a candidate. And I would guess uh, that Angela Rayner herself actually thought uh, the situation would arise of where it was Rebecca Long-Bailey uh, that won uh, the leadership and she would be the deputy. They used to be flatmates. And, um, you know, I, I think that that is why some on the left uh, actually advocated uh, voting um, Angela Rayner, because we must have a woman uh, uh, as a, a, a deputy uh, leader. And wouldn't it be nice not only to have a, a deputy leader who was a woman, but a deputy leader who was a woman alongside Rebecca 
Rebecca Long Bailey. So in other words, the Labour Party goes one better than the Tories uh, who've had two uh, female uh, leaders, two female uh, prime ministers to the Labour Party's zero. Either way, um, events seem to be taking us uh, towards some sort of crisis uh, for the Labour Party and the relationship between the trade unions uh, and the Labour Party. But they're also taking us to a crisis um, of the Labour left. And, and we should expect under these circumstances uh, to see the formation of all sorts of uh, uh, broad fronts, um, you know, that uh, are, are meant to, you know, collect people who've either been forced out of the Labour Party or who've left the Labour Party uh, in, disgust, in disgust. The problem I have uh, with that is that these formations don't end well. Uh, if they're successful, uh, they end up as coalition partners uh, for bourgeois parties. Just look at uh, the role of Syriza aligning itself with a far-right nationalist party, but also look at the role of Syriza in, uh, 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 in Greece, imposing austerity um, on its own people, acting on behalf of the IMF, IMF World Bank, uh, and the EU. But also we can look at Spain uh, with Podemos now being in coalition government with the Socialist Workers' Party, um, not a, a Socialist Workers' Party um, any longer, uh, just a name. But this is a bourgeois uh, uh, a government, and Podemos provides a left wing um, um, of uh, that government. We know um, in uh, Germany, the De Linke, the left party, the former official communist party, is only too willing uh, to join a coalition at a national level if it was asked. Uh, we've seen its role at a local level. And so either they end up actually uh, hand in glove uh, with the bourgeoisie, trying, yes, of course, uh, to get concessions that alleviate the suffering of the working class and ordinary people, but sometimes failing in that and becoming instruments of austerity themselves, or more likely in British conditions, because we have first past the post, as opposed to most European countries have some sort of PR system which allows smaller parties uh, representation. In Britain, first past the post is an un unforgiving system. And uh, that normally means, unless you're a regional party, you have very little chance of getting in Parliament. For a communist party, uh, that's a secondary uh, question. It's not a primary uh, question. Either way, we've had lots of examples of these um, sort of parties, and they've all ended very, very badly. Um, the most, you know, the, the earliest one that I can remember is the Socialist Labour Party of Arthur Scargill, which ended up as Arthur Scargill's dictatorship. Um, we've also had the um, Socialist Alliance in, uh, in England and Wales, which the SWP um, pulled the plug on um, after having the Socialist Party uh, walk out. Uh, we then had the Socialist Workers' Party organise respect in alliance uh, with the British branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and that ended in complete uh, a disaster. In Scotland, we had the Scottish Socialist Party. We still have the Scottish Socialist Party, uh, which ended blowing up 
um, over the um, Tommy Sheridan uh, sex uh, uh, scandal and is now uh, many, many uh, uh, different uh, fragments. So although it appears to be uh, the most uh, crazy, um, you know, uh, um, program to stand on at the present time, it is the most realistic. It is the one that's needed, i.e. what the left should be doing is uniting as Marxists, uh, uniting um, under a, an agreed minimum maximum uh, a program of the sort uh, that the Bolsheviks had uh, before 1917 and note uh, also had after 1917. Um, it was Lenin actually that took the lead insisting that even though they'd taken power uh, it would be premature he said uh, to actually junk the minimum program after all he said there's always the possibility uh, that we will be defeated and we'll have to return uh, again as a party of opposition. So just I think that just needs to be borne in mind. Either way, I'm not right trying to run an argument about 1917. I'm simply saying uh, that a minimum maximum program of the sort that the Bolsheviks had, of the sort uh, that German social democracy had with the Erfurt program and that was copied uh, throughout Europe and including into the United States and other uh, countries, that sort of program uh, has the potential uh, to unite Marxists and Marxists would be far more effective in such a party uh, than they are now uh, divided into numerous um, confessional uh, sects that you have to agree with um, and agree is the word, agree uh, with some set of thesis or some sort of program uh, or you have to agree with the current leadership. Um, um, th that is not the way uh, that Marxists should organize. We're talking about accept uh, and room uh, for, for disagreement uh, and uh, open criticism and open struggle between different trends, different ideas and all the rest of it. Either way, uh, what I'm what I'm basically saying is, it, at least it appears to me uh, that the Labour Party is uh, ceasing uh, to be um, um, an immediate, um, you know, site of struggle that you can expect to make any progress um, um, in. We should fight. Uh, we shouldn't give in. But if you fight and you don't give in, we should recognise that we're calling for people, uh, basically. Um, to sacrifice uh, their membership. And I think that is the correct thing to do. So the, the key question then becomes, having been kicked out of the Labour Party, what do you do next? That's the question uh, that we need to be debating and um, trying to clarify uh, uh, with uh, on, in, in terms of comrades on the left. Okay, um, I think there was a very good article, if you haven't read it yet, uh, in the weekly worker this week by Michael Roberts. Uh, he put it on his uh, blog. Um, we've edited it slightly uh, to take into account the fact that in Britain, um, I think either from Monday or Tuesday, they will be rolling out the uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccine. I don't know how they're gonna get it out to care homes. Either way, uh, they're starting to roll it out. And of course the um, the big one comes, I think, early next year 
with the Oxford uh, vaccine, the present one, uh, the government's ordered, what was it, 40 million doses. That's enough for 20 million people. You have to have two shots. But the Oxford vaccine, I think the government, unless I'm mistaken, actually ordered 400 million or was it 200 million? A huge quantity uh, uh, either way. Um, the other vaccine that they're using um, is, is being ordered in much smaller uh, quantities. Either way, uh, this has got nothing to do with the market. This has got nothing to do with ordinary uh, capitalism. Uh, this is a situation that's equivalent uh, to war. And under war conditions, uh, governments in World War I and World War II of all sorts of different uh, complexions have torn up uh, their economic textbooks and have gone for state organization. Um, in Germany, uh, they called it war socialism, um, something that Lenin looked at in 1917 before the Bolsheviks took power and talked about, well, we can stop the collapse of the economy. We can stop the collapse uh, of Russia if we apply measures of war socialism. And we, the Bolsheviks, are prepared to do that. So we will nationalize the banks. Uh, we will organize um, a distribution uh, on the basis of rationing. We will organize supervision. We're prepared to do it. The provisional government could do it but they're not willing uh, uh, to do it. So to me, uh, Michael Roberts is absolutely right. This, this illustrates uh, the role of the state. It shows you uh, that when you're faced with a big crisis, organization is the uh, answer, uh, not the market. And it's been remarkable. Uh, and we ought to celebrate it um, on the left, uh, that what took 10 years has been done in 10 months. It used to take 10 years to develop a vaccine. And what we're dealing with, once the Chinese had studied this virus, uh, worked out its DNA, released it to the world, then in China, Russia, America, and in Britain, uh, the scientists went to work. And uh, yeah, within 10 months, uh, they came up uh, uh, with a vaccine. Uh, a lot of the left um, have forgotten um, you know, that classically, you know, in terms of our tradition, we've celebrated science. And I understand why that's been dropped, um, you know, in the epoch of, uh, you know, um, the atom bomb and, um, you know, the perversion of science uh, by capitalism, the subordination of science uh, to the search for uh, profit. Um, uh, we've often forgotten uh, the importance of science. Uh, to the Marxist uh, uh, project. But the fact of the matter is uh, that it shows you uh, this uh, COVID-19 virus, what could be done uh, in terms of the common cold? What could be done with the flu? What could be done with malaria? What could be done with a whole host uh, of other endemic diseases uh, that exist, especially uh, in the third world? Science has the ability uh, to get rid of get rid of these uh, diseases. And I think that COVID-19 uh, illustrates that. In Britain, uh, the government moved, again, in a war socialism way, uh, to eliminate street homelessness. Uh, it simply said, well, there's people out on the streets. There are empty hotels. Homeless people move into those hotels. Uh, and it was solved. 
uh, now homeless people are sleeping back out uh, in the open. But anybody who knows London, uh, I don't know in terms of other cities, uh, well, there are thousands and tens of thousands of empty houses, not least luxury houses in the middle of the city, places like Mayfair. If I went down there tonight, uh, there, you know, the windows would be dark. Uh, if I went up the road from where I am to so-called Billionaire's Road, um, loads of those houses would be dark because what we're dealing with is a class of people who don't have one home, two homes, three homes. We're talking about a class of people that have a house, I don't know, in New York, a, a house in Switzerland, a house in the south of France, a house in uh, you know, the Caribbean, a house in New York. Uh, these houses ought to be occupied. And if they're vacant, it's a crime uh, not to house people. That could be done overnight. And if one carries on, unemployment again could be cured overnight. Uh, you simply put people uh, to work doing useful things. There are loads of useful things that can be done. That is what a workers' government could do. That's technically what capitalism could do. But of course, once you raise the question of organization, once you raise the question of the role of the state, private capital uh, gets very jittery. The stock markets lose confidence. Uh, uh, capitalists uh, uh, take their money out uh, uh, to safety. So in terms of capitalism as a system, uh, it's fundamentally um, uh, interested in expansion for the sake of expansion. We're fundamentally interested in human beings uh, for the sake of human beings. A, a, a big, big uh, difference. Having mentioned uh, COVID-19, interesting um, opinion poll came out uh, over the weekend. And what it said is that the British people who at the beginning of this uh, pandemic approved of what the government was doing by 58%. Uh, now that figure is down to 27%. And I think uh, that uh, loss of confidence is justified because if we look at Britain, um, it's handled this um, um, COVID-19 pandemic I'm not saying equally as bad, but it ranks in the same sort of league uh, as um, Brazil, uh, the United States, uh, um, in terms of lack of preparation um, and in terms of the death toll. Uh, this didn't need to happen. It shouldn't have happened. The government should have been prepared. It wasn't prepared. And it's interesting uh, to note uh, in that respect, of course, that there was a vote in Parliament um, a few days ago with Boris Johnson facing an opposition, not from the Labour Party, uh, but from his backbenchers uh, on the question of uh, lockdown. These people are very much in tune with Donald Trump and uh, we don't need to wear a mask and there is no such thing as society. Uh, there are only individuals uh, and their families. And of course, what you get is the press having fun and games. So there's a story uh, going the rounds at the moment uh, of a house in Yorkshire. Um, and there's the picture of it. There's the house uh, that's in, let me check it out. The house is in tier two. Um, there's the garden in tier three. How crazy, how illogical, how stupid 
uh, that's the press for you. But if you have a lockdown, if you act as a community, you'll always get such absurdities. Uh, that goes with the fact that human beings are a community and aren't simply just individuals uh, and their families. You have to draw lines uh, and sometimes the regulations that you pass appear to be bizarre because in the details, of course, they are bizarre. But unless you go at the level of, you know, atomizing society to the point of gravel and saying everyone can do what they want and it's up to you whether you wear a mask, it's up to you whether you socially mix, it's up to you uh, uh, to do what you want. Uh, no, society uh, uh, needs to act together. And it's interesting, in spite of that massive drop in support for the government over its handling of COVID-19, the vast majority of the population still supports lockdown and says that they observe uh, the lockdown. So in terms, we see one graph going down of confidence in the government, but nonetheless, in terms of the population, it's, collect it's kept its sense of collectivity. It's kept its sense of uh, being uh, a society. So we see something very contradictory uh, uh, going on um, here. Just thought it would be worthwhile mentioning. It doesn't have any practical significance as far as I understand it, but the House of Representatives in the United States, as, as I understand it, has passed a motion or, or some resolution in favor of decriminalizing cannabis. Well, that's true in various states um, in the United States. And of course it won't happen uh, because of the Senate. It won't happen, one would guess, because of the president. Nevertheless, all you have to say is in countries that have decriminalized or even legalized uh, cannabis, society hasn't collapsed. Uh, we don't see uh, civilization go down a hole. Uh, it, if there is any sort of crisis, it's not a crisis with cannabis, it's a crisis, certainly in the United States, uh, a crisis of legal opiates uh, that drug companies deliberately pushed uh, to a population um, and, and then got people uh, addicted. Um, that is a real uh, uh, crisis. Okay. Coming to uh, the end, thought it was worthwhile just to comment on um, the Chinese flag, not saying waving in the wind on the moon, but you know what I mean, being planted uh, on the lunar surface. This is the first time in 40-ish years uh, that a flag has uh, been planted um, on the moon. Uh, I suppose maybe even more remarkably, this, plant, uh, this flag was planted uh, by a robot uh, device uh, that then is taken off uh, with a soil uh, sample. I don't think it's gonna tell scientists uh, anything that we don't know uh, about the moon. One would gather that this is in preparation for some sort of uh, Chinese um, landing of people. I won't say manned, uh, because as I understand it, the next person to land on the moon from America is due to be a woman, if they ever get round to it. But this is about propaganda. This is about state standing. That was what Kennedy's pledge uh, was all about um, in the 1960s. And it was remarkable uh, how quickly, again, it was done. It was an, an engineering uh, miracle 
uh, America was behind Russia uh, in terms of uh, big missiles. Um, remember, Russia had the first uh, artificial satellite, uh, the first animal in space, the first man in space, the first, um, um, was it a two-man crew or three-man crew, first spacewalk, one can just carry on down the list. And America overtook uh, Russia, uh, landed someone on the moon, sent back um, some rocks and boulders and stuff and went back several uh, uh, other times. That was a triumph uh, for the United States. Uh, that was an announcement that the United States uh, is still the hegemon. Look what we can do. Now, of course, you can get into arguments about uh, nonstick frying pans um, and all the rest of it. But the fact of the matter is uh, that um, um, uh, in terms of those landings, they did not represent a scientific breakthrough. Uh, this was an example of engineering uh, prowess. And in my view, at least, that's what um, a Chinese mission to land people on the moon would be. It will be the announcement, China has arrived. Uh, we are uh, a big, powerful uh, country. Admire us, learn uh, uh, from us. And I'm not discounting uh, symbols. I just don't believe myself that the future of humanity lies in space. Um, I know uh, that we have the example of um, the final frontier in America, uh, but Europeans going to America, that was one thing. Uh, human beings colonizing the moon, colonizing Mars. Uh, I just don't buy into it. I certainly buy into the militarization of space. Uh, that is certainly something uh, that I think is happening in front of our uh, eyes. Uh, but I believe that the future of humanity is here on Earth. I don't say that in a narrow way, but we are an evolved species and we should treat planet Earth with the respect that it deserves because it's our only planet that can really support human life. Um, you know, uh, Mars, uh, well, if, if Elon Musk wants to live there and die there, he's welcome to do it. But personally, uh, I... <laughs> I could dream of visiting it, but six months to get there, please. Six months sat in a tin can? Uh, no, not for me. Uh, I, I mean, just on that, you can read science, not science fiction books, but you can read um, a Futurology from the 60s. Uh, Isaac Asimov, who was a lo lovely guy, uh, talked about what this was in the times of the population uh, bomb uh, type nonsense. And he talked about in the early 60s, the future of humanity lies at the bottom of the sea because the land will be so crowded, uh, we'll have to colonize the bottom of the ocean. Well, it, it was never going to happen, isn't going to happen, and nor is, um, you know, real human colonization of the moon or Mars in the same way that we saw in America. Uh, that isn't going to happen. Okay, that's at least my uh, view. But having said that, uh, that this is all for display, that this is the Chinese showing what they're capable of in terms of engineering and big power, um, you know, braggadocio. Uh, note uh, the announcement, and this was timed, of the new Chinese quantum computer. Now, what we're told, this is me reading uh, the uh, Financial Times, but I've also listened to Yasmin Mather, 
who's involved in that uh, field talk at Communist University, how quantum computers exactly work and how they're so bloody fantastic compared with the computer I've got on the ground there, I don't quite understand. I sort of understand something about quantum physics, but how you work that out into calculations and, and program these things, well, they haven't programmed them yet, as I understand it. Either way, I haven't got my head around it. Either way, uh, this new Chinese um, quantum uh, computer can work 10 billion times faster than existing supercomputers. So we're not talking about computing power increasing uh, by a factor of one every uh, two years. Uh, that era has come to an end, might be having slow advances there, but we are talking about a qualitative development. And this, this quantum computer is apparently vastly more powerful even than Google's um, Sycamore um, quantum uh, computer. And again, showing the progress that China is making, uh, where in the past China was, um, I'm not saying blatantly, uh, but yeah, it was blatantly copying uh, American and Western technology. This is a, um, a completely new technology uh, in terms of uh, quantum computers. The quantum computers that uh, Yasmin was describing, that apparently now the reason why uh, Yasmin is up to there, by the way, is apparently they're installing a quantum computer um, sort of as we speak at uh, Oxford. Um, but the quantum computers that Yasmin was showing us pictures of and des describing, these had to work in sub, 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 sub zero uh, temperatures. Uh, this new quantum computer of the Chinese uh, doesn't. Uh, and it uses um, uh, particles of light. That's my understanding. And, and it consists of mirrors, lasers, uh, prisms, photon detectors. Uh, and other such uh, devices. So this is a, a qualitative leap um, of Chinese technology compared with the very best uh, technology uh, that the United States has developed. Now that doesn't mean that China is um, on the edge, on the cusp uh, of becoming uh, the global hegemon, uh, but it does show you uh, that China uh, can no longer be simply classified as a medium developed uh, country in certain areas. Uh, and clearly quantum computers is very much the technology uh, of tomorrow. It will allow uh, scientists investigating, um, um, you know, the physical nature of the universe. Um, it will take them uh, into areas at the moment that are just unknowable, uh, but also it will have, you know, just uh, applications in terms of our day-to-day -day life uh, that you cannot predict, that, that, but will clearly uh, impact on everyday life. And if they've made uh, the development that they have, it will, I don't know how long it will take, um, soon, but soon uh, be having practical applications, but not least military uh, uh, applications. So yeah, China um, is a genuine uh, rival uh, to the United States. And that's why certainly, um, although I don't think China's on the cusp of taking overtaking the United States, it's why I certainly would not expect the Joe Biden presidency to have uh, a radically different approach to China 
than with Trump. It, the language will be different. Nonetheless, the substance will be the same. And if you look at the trade dispute uh, between Australia and China, this is a taste of things to come. Um, the United States will organize its allies um, in order to attempt to isolate and um, reduce the progress uh, of China. Um, that I think we can be um, certain of. And I think I'll end it there. Th thanks, Dan.